Last week, as we looked at Pentecost and the sayings of Jesus and his, his imperatives, the focal point was on letting the Spirit speak. And we learned that adversity does come, but it brings opportunity. Not to worry when that happens, because we can trust God and rely on Him. And therefore, when we do, when we're called upon to speak and to witness and to testify for, for Him, we let God speak through us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, those passages told us last week, to give utterance, that is, to speak His Word prophetically, and to give us wisdom to know His will and to be in the center of His purpose. And what this does is it gives us confidence, and that's the subject this morning as Jesus speaks about not fearing, being bold, confidence and boldness to speak and to witness for Him. What is that confidence not? What is that boldness not? Well, I would suggest to you it's not rashness. It's not rushing into things without counting the cost. Jesus tells us we must count the cost. You see, that rashness is based on ignorance. This boldness that we talk about today is not brashness. Some think that it means to be like a bull in a china shop proclaiming the word of God or what they think is the Word of God, and sensitive to others, that is not the kind of boldness that is spoken about. That brashness is not ignorance, it's arrogance. There's another thing that it's not. It's not bravado. Yes, suffering will come, persecution will come, there will be ridicule that will come, and some act with false bravado, foolhardily showboating themselves in the pursuit of glory. Look at how many scalps that I have won for the Lord. That is not the kind of boldness that we're talking about. You've seen it before. That is not ignorance. That is not arrogance. That's self-importance. You know, the golden age of Pericles in the middle of the 4th century B.C., 5th century down to the early uh, uh, 4th century. The age of Pericles, Athens was at its height. He died in 429. And in the last years of his life, Athens exhibited a great deal of confidence, but overconfidence and hubris. They entered into a war with Sparta, the Delian League with Athens, over against the Peloponnesian League with Sparta. Athens was at its height. Its navy was the power of the seas. It was at its power, at its height at that time. It was known for its speed and maneuverability. And in 429, in the year that Pericles died, they routed the Spartan navy in the, in the Bay of Corinth as they were seeking to attack Corinth. Their fleet, half the size of the Spartan fleet, decimated it. And then they decided, a few years later, in the middle of the Peloponnesian War, then to strike at the heart of the Peloponnesian League by attacking Syracuse, the capital of Sicily. Boldly overconfident. They overestimated their ability their tactics and their logistical support, and they began a long siege in the harbor of Syracuse. And they underestimated the size and the resources and the population of the capital city and the support it got from the hinterlands. Hubris, overconfidence, a boldness that was misplaced. Their supplies almost depleted after two years, their sailors exhausted, their army on the shore 
unable to break out of its fortress and to attack the island. Trapped in the Syracuse Harbor, those fast little boats then faced the sluggish, slow, but big boats of Syracuse that had them trapped. They ended up burning their own ships, and they lost an army of 40,000 men. You see, that's the price of overconfidence. That's the price of brashness and rashness and hubris. That is not the kind of boldness that Jesus is talking about here today. We're talking about a godly boldness. We're talking about a godly boldness that is willing to confront fear and the source of that fear and the power of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about a godly boldness that is confident in His presence and we're convinced that we're in the center of God's will and purpose. And so he talks about this in the passage that's a little later than what we addressed last week in Matthew's Gospel, the 10th chapter, just three verses today, 26 through 28. Therefore, he says to his disciples, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or anything that is hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in darkness... Speak in the light. And and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. You see, the context of Matthew, the 10th chapter, once again, we will be reminded is that Jesus is sending out his 12 disciples into Galilee to heal, to raise the dead, to to cast out demons, and above all, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And he warns them just before this passage, there are going to be those that persecute you. He gives them three exhortations not to fear. There are going to be those that persecute you in verse number 26, warning against those that will slander them and abuse them. And then he warns them in verse 28, not to worry about those that can kill the body. And then he gives them another warning about whom to fear. And then he closes, and we didn't read this part of the passage, but we'll cover it, uh, the warning against doubting their value before God. There are parallel passages to this one in Matthew. The one that mirrors it, that is the full passage, is found in Luke, the 12th chapter, and it contains all of what we read. The background of that is a little different. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and the Pharisees have dogged his trail. They have been after him. They have been plotting ever since the beginning of his ministry in Galilee with the Herodians to destroy him, and they constantly come to him and question him. They even say that he is possessed by Beelzebub. They want a sign from Jesus, and he refuses to give a sign, but finally he relents, and he said, I'll give you a sign. You remember what happened to Jonah. He was in the fish for three days. And just like that, the Son of Man will be raised after being in the ground for three days. The Pharisees then, Jesus confronts just before this in Luke's passage, pronouncing woes upon the Pharisees and woes upon the scribes, which is found late in Matthew's gospel. There are a couple of other texts that contain a snippet of today's passage. Verse 26b. You see where it says nothing is concealed and all will be revealed? That is found in two other places. It's found in Mark's gospel, the fourth chapter, and it's found also in Luke's gospel, the eighth chapter, and it's after Jesus has spoken the parable of the sower. And you might remember 
That's in the context of Jesus talking about how the kingdom grows. And he has told his disciples, I speak in parables. And there's a good reason for that. Because you have a willingness to hear the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But there are many who do not, are not willing to hear, listen, and obey. And to them, the secret has not been revealed. And then he tells a parable of the lamp. Let your lights then shine to reveal the hidden things that are spoken about. I want to talk about two things this morning from this passage. One is we need to be bold with the gospel. There are different ways to be bold, and the scripture tells us how to do that. Not with brashness, not with rashness, not with bravado, not with hubris, not with self-importance, but be bold with the gospel. A second thing is we need fear no one but God. The first of those, be bold with the gospel. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. You see, what I tell you in the darkness, speak it in the light. And, and what you hear whispered in your ear, literally what you hear coming to your ear from me, proclaim upon the housetops. He says, don't fear them. And what he's talking about is those that he's talked about previously in this passage that might intimidate them, their opponents. These are the wolves among whom they go. Citizens that will turn them over to the courts. Religious leaders that will flog them in the synagogues. Officials, governors and kings who have the power of life and death over them. Even family members will betray them. And there will be those that will hate and malign them in his name. The very one that the Pharisees have said is possessed by Beelzebub. You see, what this verse does, these verses do, I think, is it reinforces what we said last week from verses 19 through 20. Don't worry beforehand about what you're going to say. And remember what we said about that. Not only don't worry about the content of what you say, because the Holy Spirit will give it to you, but don't worry about the consequences. Don't worry about the suffering that this will bring. And you see, now he is addressing that. Why? Don't worry, because you see, now is the time. Now is the accepted day. Now is the day of salvation, you see. And truth will out. You see, God has revealed this plan for ages, but now it's being revealed. Truth will out. Even the Greek pagan philosophers knew this. Thales of Miletus put it this way. Time is the wisest of all things. For you see, it brings everything to light. And that is exactly what is happening now as Jesus talks to them. The concealed mystery of the ages, the gospel, God is now exposing it. Paul speaks about this in Colossians. The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations. But it's now manifested to his saints, that is to us, to his disciples to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the nations, among the Gentiles, not just the Jews. And what is that mystery? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, that which has been hidden, now Jesus is telling them it's time to reveal it. And we have a responsibility to be bold with this gospel. Bold in three ways, I think. Bold to proclaim it. Proclaim it with open boldness in the light from the housetops. But also be bold in teaching. Teach it with a bold kind of patience. And then finally, stand fast 
with a bold kind of confidence. Now, the reason that I come up with those three points is because actually when you look at this passage in different contexts, it means slightly different things. In, in Matthew's gospel, in Math, Matthew the 10th chapter, it, it is focusing on the boldness of proclaiming. Proclaim it with open boldness. Matthew's emphasizing now. He's sending out his 12 into Galilee with their marching orders. And there's a kind of contrast here. There's a contrast between what he's doing with them and what they are to do in the field. He says to them something like this, even as I am telling you in the darkness, you see that's a continuous kind of activity, even when you come to me in the evening and I'm telling you these things at the very same time, and then he uses an aorist imperative, and the aorist imperative is now do it, finally. He says go out and speak, not in the darkness, but in the openness and the full sunshine of the day. And he does this same kind of contrast then when he says, even while you hear me speaking privately to you in your ear, and this continues, I want you then to go up on the housetops and I want you to proclaim it from the highest point in the village. There's a principle here. We come every week, we do Bible study, you hear preaching, you go to small groups, you do your devotions at home, maybe in the quiet of the night, maybe in the darkness of your closet. And this goes on every day, learning continuously, and the Lord speaks to you and the Spirit speaks to you continuously. But when it comes to the daytime, he says, go out. Go into the light and take the light into a dark and dangerous world. Into a pagan world of darkness, then, we do what? You know it well, friends. We poke holes in the darkness with the light of the gospel. Do it. And he says, those things that you hear the Spirit of God whispering to you in your devotions and convicting you that you need to be doing something, then you go out the next day and you broadcast the news of God, the good news, amongst the cacophony of life, amongst the dissonance and the false messages that swirl on the internet and on the TV and are broadcast across this land and around the globe. In the discord of a confused world, broadcast the truth of God clearly. Arist imperative, punctiliar, do it. You see, this is what Matthew's saying. We have a responsibility to be bold in proclaiming it wherever you go. Not brashly, not rashly, not with self-importance, but directly. And then there is a second thing, to teach it with bold patience. And this is found in Mark 4 and Luke 8 when we have the parable then of the sower. You see, Jesus has spoken in secrets hidden truths for those that are willing to listen and to learn and to obey. He then speaks about the growth of the kingdom. Two parables, the parable of the seed and then the parable of the mustard seed. And you remember what he says, the kingdom is like a mustard seed and it starts small. You plant it and then what happens? It grows and it becomes the largest of all garden plants, so big and full of shade that the birds of the air perch in its its branches. What's the point that's being made here? We need to teach the gospel as Jesus did, not just proclaim it, but we need to be patient with that. A bold kind of patience that says this, I may plant the seed, but I may not see it grow. I may water the seed, but I may not see it grow. You remember Paul said this, some plant and some water, some tend, but who brings the harvest? Who brings the harvest, congregation? It is God who brings the harvest. And so we need to, this boldness needs to have a kind of patient trust in God. 
We prayed earlier, not just for revival, but for harvesters, workers to come into the field. We don't make that happen. God does. We need to wait on the Lord to do that. And then in that same passage, right after that, it seems misplaced. You read about the parable of the sower and then the explanation of the parable of the sower, and then all of a sudden he shifts gears. But there's a reason for it. Because we also have another responsibility, not just to plant and to nurture, but to bring light upon the situation. He says this in Mark, the fourth chapter, and he uses the context of what we read from Matthew, the 10th chapter. A lamp is not brought to be put in under a basket. It's not brought in to be put under a bed. Isn't that brought in to be put on a lampstand? You see, he said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And then he says this, for nothing is hidden except that which is to be revealed. You see, there it is. Nor has anything been in secret, but that will not come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. I think what Mark and Luke are telling us in those two passages is we need to be bold and are waiting upon the Lord to bring the harvest. And then there's a third aspect of boldness, and that is to stand fast. To stand fast with a bold confidence. Where do we find that? In Luke's passage, the parallel passage, it's against the con- two different contexts. Before he is talking about hypocrisy, and after this passage, he's talking about the kingdom that is coming. You see, the purpose of the uncovering is to do two things with Luke. It is to uncover hypocrisy. If you do look at Luke, the 12th chapter, the beginning of that passage, just before this one, Jesus has been rebuking the Pharisees and the scribes. They've been plotting against him secretly, hidden, you see, in the darkness. They've been plotting with the Herodians. They have been using their hypocrisy to suppress the gospel. And Jesus looks at them. And he says here in Luke what he says to them after the feeding of the 4,000. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, what's the point? I think here he's saying, it's time now to speak openly. It's time, as I have done, to speak openly. When he stands before the high priest, just before he is crucified, even though he spoke parables... Everything that was essential in proclaiming the gospel, he spoke openly and clearly. He says this to the high priest. You see, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues. I've always taught in the temple where all the Jews come together and I have spoke nothing in secret. You see, what he's calling us to do in this respect, in terms of the hypocrisy of this age, in terms in the context of the false messages that float all across our nation, He is saying, it's time to confront that opposition, folks. It's time to expose falsehood and hypocrisy for what it is. And the only way to do it is with God's truth. Don't worry, friends, about the subterfuge and duplicity of people around you and the consequences. Don't worry, Jesus is saying, about the possibility of being ridiculed. Don't worry about cancel culture. Don't worry about political correctness. And above all, don't be influenced by their leaven. Don't change your message to accommodate their expectations. Speak God's truth clearly, and it will uncover hypocrisy. It will uncover false teaching. But beyond that, you look at the passage after that in Luke, the 12th chapter, and he speaks about it vindicating the gospel. For you see, after this in Luke's gospel, he speaks then about three parables about Christ's return. And then he tells them what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry. Don't worry about what you wear, what you drink, what you eat. 
Just seek first the kingdom. You see the emphasis on the kingdom there. And then Luke 12 closes then with three warnings. It says, you need to get ready. You need to get ready because not only is the Son of Man coming, but he's coming to judge. So in that context, I think what Luke is saying is not only will hypocrisy be revealed, but the gospel will be vindicated. We need to trust that, friends. If we speak the message of God clearly, he will reveal hypocrisy, but eventually he will vindicate his word. It may come in your situation as you do it. It may not come just then. It may, be, it may come fully in your lifetime. It may not come just then, but it will come someday. For even Solomon knew this. He said, for God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether it's good or evil. Peter, Paul, and John said the same thing. Paul said, wait until the Lord comes and he will bring then all things to light, things that are hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Hypocrisy eventually will be revealed. The author of Hebrews tells us, and no creature is hidden from his light, but all are unclothed and exposed to the eyes of him who will, uh, to whom we must give account. What we do know is this. David tells us that someday the gospel will be vindicated. He doesn't talk about the gospel in those terms. But that's the meaning. He will bring forth your righteousness. If you proclaim the gospel clearly and the truth of God clearly, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and the judgment of the noonday sun. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Do not fret because of the man who carries out his evil schemes. Friends, first point. We need to be bold with the gospel. We need to proclaim it openly, boldly. We need to teach it patiently and wait for God to bring the harvest. And we need to stand fast confidently until God vindicates his gospel. Fear not, Isaiah says. I'm with you. Don't be dismayed. For I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Be bold with the gospel wherever you go. The second and concluding point is you need to know whom to fear. Fear no one but God. Do not fear earthly opponents. Matthew says, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Luke puts it this way. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but afterward have no more that they can do. The implication of this is obvious. Existence beyond this life is not only possible, but certain. The soul survives. What is the soul? He's not talking here about a compartment of who you are. He's not talking about body, mind, spirit, soul. It's not a compartment. He's talking about the essential being, the essential person, the true self, the sentient being who you are. It will survive after death. And then when he talks about killing, and this may seem so obvious, but there is a contrast in, the, in what he says about what man can do and what God can do. Man can only kill. Man can only stop the existence and extinguish this life that you have in this body. Only this body can they cause to perish. You see, the focus on this passage, I don't think, is to do a treatise on immortality of the soul. We, we find evidence of that in plenty of other passages. The point of this passage is to talk about who has authority beyond this life. Matthew's meaning is very clear. 
Those who kill the body, that's any human, and I would suggest angelic power that can cause the body to perish. They may be able to kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. They cannot extinguish the existence after this bodily life. It literally says they are not empowered to do so. They are powerless to do so. They cannot stop your soul's existence after this life. Therefore, we have hope beyond this bodily death. Martin Luther put it this way in his famous hymn. You know it. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So they can't do anything to the body after that or to the, the person after that. Luke's meaning goes a little beyond this. Look at what he says. After killing the body, they have no more that they can do. You see, they possess no ability. They are incapable of doing anything more after we die. They cannot touch us after death, however powerful they may be on this earth. We are free from their control beyond this life. What are the implications of that, friends? They go beyond what Matthew said somewhat. You see, no power on this earth. Human, no superhuman power, angelic power, how dark it may be, can stop your existence and your soul beyond the grave. Hmm. They cannot prevent entry into heaven. A church that teaches that you must go to purgatory and that the church has the power over purgatory, it's a false teaching. They cannot condemn to hell. The church cannot condemn to hell. There is no human power on this earth that can condemn to hell. A church that says outside the church there is no salvation puts emphasis on the church and not Christ. And if you're not in the church, then you will go to hell. Folks, a church does not have that power. No one here has any power to grant special privileges in heaven. The Muslims are not right when they promise physical pleasures in paradise to come. They cannot do that. They cannot deliver. Jehovah Witnesses cannot identify and cannot empower 144 that have special status. The Mormons cannot promise and deliver that we will become like gods and that we are married for time and eternity. There are false messages all around us about the promises beyond this life, and none of them, absolutely none of them, can deliver beyond what the Word of God says. Fear not men. Fear not those that can kill the body. Fear not those that can condemn. Fear not those or hope not in those who promise something beyond this life. Fear only God. But rather fear him, Matthew says, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell, it says in Luke. What do these passages mean? God alone controls both life and death, absolutely and finally. We're told this in Deuteronomy. God himself says, see now that I, I am he, and there's no God besides me. It is I who put to death. It is I who give life. It is I who have wounded. It is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. James put it about the same way. There's no lawgiver and judge except the one who is able to save and destroy. You see, God has the power over both life and death and beyond this bodily life. Only God can, and it doesn't say 
kill here. There's the point. Only God can destroy. Only God can completely ruin. Only God can cast out. Only God can make totally useless. Some people interpret this as annihilation, that that means that God is going to annihilate those that are not obedient and they'll have a peaceful non-existence in eternity. The scripture says no. (laughs) There is eternal suffering and misery and death and hell. What this does mean is that God has power over death that is total and intense beyond anything that anybody in this life to do. The extent of God's power is his ability completely to ruin. Only he has the supernatural power unlike humans and angelic beings. And only he can destroy both body and soul, the whole person. Only he has the authority, the scripture says, unlike humans and angelic beings. Only he can destroy permanently and perpetually, but his destruction is not annihilation. Only he can cast into hell. Jesus speaks about the parable of the goats and the sheep. And the king will say to the goats on his left hand, Depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels. The scripture is very clear. There is hell. I don't know all that that means. I had somebody the other day that asked me, Do I believe that there's a hell? I believe there's a hell. I don't know what it's going to be like. I do know what it's going to be like. I don't know where it is. And I don't know what is metaphorical in scripture about it. What I mean is this. It is like an eternal fire that eternally destroys. And if it is a physical fire, so be it. But it's perpetual destruction. And then he will say to those on the other side, enter into eternal life. And on the left, he will say, enter into eternal punishment. You see, Christ has this authority. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Those in heaven those on earth, and those where? Under the earth. You see, he has control over eternal destiny, over heaven and hell. Jesus says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I live forevermore. And I have the keys. I have the keys of death and Hades. Let me close with two sub-points to bring this to conclusion. There is a dreadful and fatal mistake that some people make in boldly claiming the gospel. Let me say that again. There is a dreadful and fatal mistake that some people make in boldly claiming the gospel for themselves. You see, there are some, Jesus talked about it in the parable of the sower. There are some that fall on the road and the birds come like Satan and take the seed away immediately. But there are some then that flourish for a moment in shallow soil and the sun comes up and it parches them and they wither away. And there are some then that are enamored of the things of this world and the riches of this world and the things that this world can offer. And they grow up and they're choked by the concerns and the cares of this world. Folks, those two kinds of seeds are what I'm talking about. There are people that would proclaim to be followers of Christ, and they make the claim like they're punching their ticket. It's a ticket-punching exercise. Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. I know him, but there is absolutely no commitment there. It's not a commitment to Christ. It's simply punching a ticket. We talk about accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Friends, we need to talk more as well about Christ being judge. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and judge? 
with all of your being, with sincere obedience. Hebrews gives us this very sincere warning about that dreadful and fatal mistake of simply saying one is a Christ follower and not being a Christ follower. For if we go on sinning willingly after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that remains for sins. Did you hear that? If we keep on sinning when we know the truth and we do it willfully against God, there's no longer remaining a sacrifice for sins. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. We must be earnest and sincere about our acceptance of Christ with a commitment to be obedient. And just as dreadful and fatal as that mistake of being a superficial, nominal, speaking only follower of Christ is a great and marvelous relief, and that's the final message. You see, God's grace is greater than all our sin. We sin after we accept Christ. Hopefully not willingly and habitually, but God's grace is big enough to cover it all. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. God wants no one to perish. That's the good news. Peter tells us he's patient and he's willing that no one should perish, but that they would come to repentance. Paul tells Timothy that God desires for all people to be saved and know the truth. And God's will, Jesus himself says, is that we will be saved and be resurrected. And this last point, the second point, is this. Look at verses 29 and 30. Don't worry. Don't fear. You also have value before God. Great value. He watches the bird of the air, and he knows when the bird falls to the ground. I came home yesterday, and there was a pile of feathers in the middle of my yard. You know what that means, don't you? There was a cooper's hawk sitting up in the tree, and there was a pigeon that was just eating away and feeding just fat, dumb, and happy, and what happened? It became a pile of feathers. What's the point? I believe this literally. I believe that God cares for his all, all of his creation and he knows everything that happens. And he cared and he knew when that pigeon fell to earth. Do you not know that you're much more valuable than many, many sparrows, many pigeons? And then also, too, he numbers the hairs on your head. He cares for you. Got a haircut this past week, shaved my beard off. I had to go do a military funeral and I went into the barber shop and he'd had a busy day that day hair covered the floor and I looked at that and I thought you know the Lord knew when every one of those hairs hit the floor he cares that much for you God speaks in the darkness and the quiet of the night and he speaks to your heart as Christ's followers. Be bold and take the gospel wherever you go. He whispers his invitation to be a gospel harvester. Obey. There may be some today 
that God is speaking in the darkness of a dark heart. He's speaking in the tumultuous days of lostness and separation from him. And if he is speaking to you in that kind of darkness and he whispers to your heart, I challenge you to be bold, to take his invitation to listen to what he says as he whispers to you and he he invites you to come and follow him. Would you pray with me? What you tell us in darkness, Lord, we know we're to speak in the light and what we hear whispered in our ear, we're to proclaim from the housetops. My prayer is that as you whisper through your spirit's deepest sighs, as you speak to souls across this land as as the gospel is preached today, not just here, not just in Tarrant County, not just in Texas, not just here in America, but wherever the gospel is preached by Christ-centered gospel preaching Great Commission churches, that there will be those who hear the message of the good news, that they do not have to spend eternity in hell, but they might have everlasting life in Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, our Lord, and we're reminded, our judge. And my prayer is this morning that there will be those that respond to that message here and around the globe and be saved and have eternal life. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.